Welcome to Digital Stratosphere, the podcast that helps organizations throughout the world with their digital transformation journeys. Here, you will find independent and technology agnostic advice with no software vendor sales spin to help you make the best decisions for your organization. Whether you are in the process of selecting technology, in the midst of your transformation, or trying to get your initiative back on track, Digital Stratosphere provides expertise and best practices to help. Uh, Brad, thanks for being here today. Oh, thanks, Eric. Always glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. This is what, your third time, I think I want to say? At least your third uh, time being on this podcast. Boy, by this point, I've lost count. It's uh, yeah. it's just one continuous stream here now in my, my own background. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun every time. I mean, it's so much fun to be on this show. I mean, I'm sure it all blurs together. It's just, you're, you're it, it does. A, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's such does. a stating it, euphoria. <laughs> It's a veritable fever dream. Right. <laughs> Everyone's dream is to be on this podcast. Um, so tell me a little bit about, tell us a little bit about your background. You and I have known each other for years now, but tell us for those that don't know a little bit about your background and also about Estes Group as well. Sure. So I've been with Estes now for about 10 years, just a little under now. And uh, so my background came from end user ERP based, worked for a company out of central Minnesota, uh, we were implementing Epicor across the organization. At the time, we were like a $700 million company. So a pretty large implementation from an Epicor standpoint, multi-company, multi-site, a lot of those variables in play. And I got pulled in from one of the, the local companies and one of the divisions into the headquarters. So kind of learned some of those centralized ERP and centralized IT um, mechanisms over the course of, of that transition. Uh, after that transition kind of came to its, its conclusion, uh, some old friends in the consulting business uh, pulled me into Estes Group, and I, and I started training and learning about uh, ERP from a consultant's perspective versus a power user, a core team member. And uh, over the course with Estes, we've really been trying to figure out the migration of ERP as simply location versus a set of IT services that we found ourselves increasingly providing customers based on their needs, uh, including the applications hosting, uh, cloud-based activities, integration development, third-party applications. So we found ourselves getting pulled into that broader ERP ecosystem. As a, as a system integrator, we often were kind of hands-off with, with a lot of that server-side uh, stuff early in my career. And as I got deeper and deeper, and as, as Estes Group itself transformed over time, we've come to focus on that, the server instantiation of the product to a much greater degree. So that for me has been kind of this eye-opening experience of, of what's behind the proverbial curtain. Yeah, absolutely. So you've gotten to see uh, the, the evolution of cloud solutions and we're going to dive into that here, obviously here today, as far as talking about what I think you've the evolution of cloud software. Oh, do you hear me okay? Oh, we're back. <laughs> you you froze with your eyes okay, closed, so I thought I'd yes, put you to sleep. Right. I apologize. <laughs> I, I mean, I did fall asleep, but no, I'm kidding. Um, no, hopefully we don't have any more technical issues. But what I, what I was going to say is you've seen the evolution of cloud solutions in your in your time, not only at Estes, but even prior to that. And, and that's certainly something we're going to dive into here today is the uh, the evolution of cloud and how it affects organizations and, and project teams in particular. Um, before I jump into some of the questions, though, and thank you for that that overview, um, I want to turn to the audience and thank uh, thank you all for dropping in the chat where you're joining from today. Uh, we've got people all over the world joining here today, as always, from uh, UK, India, Denver, Colorado, Houston, Texas, London, UK, 
uh, Dubai, India, Amsterdam, rest in Virginia, Iraq, Prague. So people from all over the world. So thank you for being here today on all the different platforms. We're streaming to YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So um, we're watching the chat here. So wherever you're joining, thanks for being here and be sure to drop in the chat uh, any questions you have here along the way. Um, so, so Brett, in your experience then, um, you've seen this evolution from on-prem to now cloud solutions and, and sort of the, the different iterations of cloud solutions as they continue to mature and evolve. But how would you say cloud migrations in general, just generally speaking, how are cloud migrations different from on-premise implementations of the past and sort of what's, what's the real net impact or how's the net impact different to organizations implementing a cloud solution versus a, uh, an on-premise solution? Okay, well, with an on with a on premise solution, the server tends to be your biggest constraint. A project cannot begin until you have hardware to install it. And I've seen countless situations where hardware delays lead to project delays. And now you're trying to implement a 12 month project in nine months because the server spin up took so long. With cloud configurations, you avoid a lot of those challenges, whether it's a public cloud SaaS based deployment or a private cloud deployment, which private clouds tend to be much more like an on-premise in terms of the architecture, dedicated resource, no risk of oversubscription, things like that. You're looking at a, a very closed envelope of an ecosystem, whereas in a SaaS world, it's much more, the curtain is much firmer. It's one of those fire curtains, right? You know, the fear in the, the 1900s of, of uh, audiences burning down because of the lack of fire control. So you have these big, thick, asbestos-laden fire curtains, wonderful things. Um, those, you, you have mu much tighter curtain in the SaaS world of knowing uh, where the, the application sits, what other competing applications and systems are, are sharing resources, how the database is structured. You change when you migrate into a, a pure SaaS, you're, you're basically uh, outsourcing the entire process to your provider to say, take the application, take the database, take the whole thing, take the integrations even, and and work and, and make those work for us. And I'm going to consume that basically as an end user. So you, you get a company full of end users who are connecting through user interfaces to this uh, application. And that's why where the end user be and the user interface become such an important part to a lot of customers who are in this world kind of the, where the topic has, has led from. So it really depends on the type of you know, application platform you're moving to in a private cloud world. Really, the, the key there is a good layout of what the ecosystem needs to look like. How many application servers? Do you have a single database or do you have a cluster? How do all those play together? And getting that organization spun up and set up in order to support project implementation if the project implementation is at its nascency if you're you taking an existing erp customer now you're taking them and you're doing potentially a, a lift and shift where you just re-image their on-prem environment into a private cloud or you build it up from scratch and often when we're encountering upgrade situations that might be a case where you need to build a new ecosystem from scratch that has the upgraded version to it again that's an area where we run into this user interface challenge when we're upgrading a customer from a very old version to the latest and greatest there's some i don't want to call it sticker shock it's more of a user interface screenshot we'll call it screenshot our user community sometimes suffers screenshot it's a, when you when you're so happy to show someone something and it's so bright and glistening that it blinds the, the, the person who's receiving it and they, they have to turn their head in disgust. It's an un, un, unfortunate and awkward event. Right. <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. What's the word again? How, what would you describe the word as? Screen, screen shock. Screen shock. Yes. So 
Well, let's build on that a little bit. How, how, um, you, you know, I talked about this before we, we came on live to, for this discussion, but one of the things that when you, when you think about web based cloud solutions and the user interface that goes along with that and the ease of use and some of the net benefits that we're being sold as consumers of mm-hmm. cloud solutions, it sounds like it's going to be a, a pretty easy adjustment. And so I guess the question would be why, why is it not like, why, why are cloud migrations not mm-hmm. as easy as they might sound on the surface? Great. Perfect. So you're asking me to elaborate on screen shock, something that yes. I coined all of 45 seconds ago. So let's, let's dig in. So uh, first let's talk a little bit about um, ERP evolution because every ERP system has kind of its own narrative. Uh, I've been in the Epicor ecosystem for going on 20 years. So I've watched the Epicor ecosystem. It's the 20 year anniversary of return of the King, I think right now, Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. great narrative there. Very different. Not not as bloody as ERP, but um, so you have an ERP system. It goes through migrations where a system uh, was living on an old old uh, underlying database structure. It migrates to something new. Let's say Microsoft and SQL Server. It changes its backend instantiation. Then over time, it says, "Well, I need to change the way the users are actually interacting with the system." And why? Because if I'm trying to take my my legacy on-prem ERP system and turn it into a SaaS-based purely cloud managed uh, ecosystem, I need the users to come along for the ride. So when you talk about SaaS as a version of cloud, software as a service, you're really talking about the server side of the application, the server instantiation, application server, database server, primarily. When you're talking about the client side, the user interface, that's where things like, you hear terms like fat client, desktop client, web UI. So that's the client side of the whole conversation. And those two can move independently. And I would say, Again, I'm, I'm talking about Epicor because, well, it's the only system I know, which isn't entirely true. And, you know, it's funny, uh, our colleague, Dan Aldridge, I met him and we started talking and we realized that we both had backgrounds in Bond. My first my first love when it comes to ERP was actually the Bond system back in the late 90s. It's kind of like, you know, you meet a girl at the at the dance and you realize that you're both Pisces. It's kind of like that moment. Oh, you you were in Bond. Oh, that, that's not me, actually. I'm a Gemini. So, But the, the basic premise here is... When you have a, an ERP system, Epicor is a good example. They migrated their server instantiations, gosh, must be 10 years ago when they, they came out with version 10. And that allowed for a SaaS-based system, Microsoft SQL Server, real well-performing and fine-tuned over time. Now, the user interface is more recent, so they had a classic WinForm, at least in the kinetic version, they had a classic WinForm desktop fat client that inter- interacted through the application server layer. Now, they had their other P21 database that was more of a two-tier versus a three-tier, no application server at all. So they took some of the lessons they learned with Epicor and that three-tier, N-tier uh, application server based, and they did something similar so they could also deploy that uh, to the cloud. Now. Along with that is, hey, I have this nice cloud-based ERP system that is really portable for the end user, provided that the end user has a portable means of accessing it. And desktop applications are, are the last thing when you think of portability. They're big, they're hogs of resources, they take up a lot of bandwidth. Sometimes you have to stick them on a terminal server farm because they'll they'll tank your own PC if you try to use it locally. Um, So you get to a position where we need a portable vehicle for this great cloud solution that we have. What better thing than a browser-based web UI? So when we talk about web UI, we're talking about the application living inside of a web browser versus being a separate 
separately installed application on your computer. And with that, the change from a old version to a new really comes with your classic version upgrade cycle. All right, so I would think of the, the, the topic in my mind, I really kind of talk about this conundrum as a, a broader category of, of change management as it relates to version upgrades. Mm -hmm. Because you, you can see there's a change management that comes with implementing a software initially, and there's similar and, and also unique in their own way strategies or issues that come up as you try to maintain that software. Because every version implies change. And how big is that change going to be when you're changing the user interface? When you're changing the way the users are actually interacting with the system, you are moving their cheese pretty significantly. So for a user working on an old desktop system, suddenly now opening a browser and trying to do the same business processes, the changes can be significant. And so for us, what we've realized that creates all kinds of challenges in terms of getting customers to stay on a current version. Now, of course, you know, what's the importance of, you know, version maintenance, sustained current? Most ERPs have, vendors have a certain like years of support, right? We'll support you X number of years back. After that, you're on your own. So it makes it harder and harder to keep your system bug free and highly performing. New features and functionalities aren't available to you. So there's a lot of reasons in general to try and keep your software up to date to some degree. I'm not a bleeding edge kind of guy. I wear a white shirt, blood doesn't look good on it. So I'm not a bleeding edge kind of guy, but I do like to keep things within the maintenance window for my customers. Right. Um, you know, For vendors, there's, there's a similar version. If I have my customers all on our new version, I can have a, a, a more fine tuned group of, of users that I support. And the, the more users I support in terms of old versions, the more costly it is to do that. So vendors obviously have a reason to try and have, you know, fixed windows and then to work, you know, assertively with their customers to try and keep them coming along. And what, what made us kind of the uh, surprised by all this, we had done some, some polling with our users at conferences and user group meetings and found that uh, in some systems, like two thirds of the, the people we were talking were not completely off the old versions of the software. So these folks were living in no longer supported versions in spite of vendors' best efforts, in spite of integrators' best efforts to help pull them along. So it begged the question, so why is there this resistance to that version upgrade? Mm -hmm. And that's that's kind of the nexus of this whole conversation. Yeah, and I think where what you're touching on too is this, uh, I think we're, what we're both saying or what we're both challenging is that assumption that just because it's a web-based user interface in a cloud solution, presumably easier to use, pr presumably more intuitive, presumably more like the consumer grade technologies that we're used to using in our personal lives. We assume that because that those statements are probably true, that therefore adopting to the changes are going to be easy. But what you're saying, and I think where you're, we're getting at here is that end users and employees that are using technology, I don't think they judge technology as much as sometimes we think they do in the industry. I think they, it, it's sort of a neutral, it's not good or bad. It's just the way the software is and the way they're used mm -hmm. to using it. And when you change that, even if it's for the better, it's a disruption, it's a learning curve, it's a challenge. In some cases, people don't like it because it's different. It might be better. It might be a you know easier, more intuitive solution to use, but that person isn't necessarily going to judge it in that way because it's different. Is that, I mean, would you agree with that? I'd never have made that comment before come to that conclusion until you were here and you give that description there. I'm curious to see what you think though. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good depiction of, of where the user communities can stand in general. Uh, and I think, 
this is probably marketing. I think a lot of our, our strategies in life too often are dictated by marketers and not by actual end users. So everyone says, oh, it needs to be hip. It needs to be cool. It needs to bring in the next generation. My son is a Zoomer and he's a much better coder than his old man. So I'm sure he would he would agree. But, you know, for anyone who has their own driver's license and owns their own car, you know, some of these things, the value and benefits of of more current technology that looks more like uh, your Twitter account, the value is not necessarily there. If you have to cut a purchase order and get it sent to a vendor in X amount of time with the right price and the right products, et cetera, all those uh, cosmetic features uh, can honestly become distractions if it is less efficient and effective for you to do their job. And what I find is, and whenever you're moving to a new version, there's a certain number of kinks to work out. Some of those kinks are, are vendor driven. Some of those kinks are internal in terms of how you use the old system. Maybe you misuse the old system. Now, how do you migrate the misuse of an old system? There's a proverb that'll keep us thinking for a long time, scratching our heads. But you run into that sort of situation where how do you fine tune the use of this new application so that it continues to be as effective and efficient as possible for the end users and does not lose major bits of functionality because i've certainly seen with uh, nascent versions of web uis as they've migrated it's it's one of those oh oh no moments where we forgot this one left click functionality here to do this special process that you used to be able to do in the old system you can't do it in the new how do you pull this process off and sometimes these are game-changing uh stoppages of work for people so you really find yourself in a situation where you have to work through all that get through all of the cosmetic stuff and make sure that functionality wise you can still support your user community yeah yeah great point and here's a question from kyler it's almost as though she was involved in our prep discussions which she was not but this is a great question that's right up right up our alley here with what we're talking about Kyler on LinkedIn says, is, is upgrade really the right word here, or is it a full new implementation when you're talking about a migration to a cloud solution? Hmm. So that's a, an interesting question. I would say that you need to, in certain instances, approach an upgrade like it is an implementation, like you are re-implementing the software, because in, in many senses of the word, you are the underlying data, the underlying business logic, which is all server side, is in, you know, in the context that we're talking about, largely untouched, but the way that it interacts with you as a user, so your, your business processes, your process flows, and your end user procedures could be radically different. So in those cases, I would say you're really, in, in a lot of ways, re-implementing the software. And there's probably a one big variable there that I would say it makes that different. And it's, it's an interesting another little case study here um, from the Epicor space. So Epicor has kind of two flagship ERP systems. They have their kinetic manufacturing and their profit 20 distribution. Now they've moved both of those to web user interfaces, but they did so kind of in radically different ways technically. So with Kinetic, they moved to an Angular JavaScript uh, user interface tool set and built a, a set of user interfaces that were dramatically different than the traditional WinForm Kinetic Vantage E10 screens that everyone was used to. In Profit 21, the web user interface looked a lot more like the original screens, the original WinForm screens. So it looked much more like traditional navigation in um, the Angular stuff. Things would collapse and expand. You had drill downs and so you could really transform your screen much more significantly than you could 
in Prophet 21. And interestingly enough, what we found, at least anecdotally, I don't have the full numbers because though that's more of a, a vendor thing. Uh, that what we found anecdotally is that the adoption rates inside of the Prophet 20 world were more successful than they were in Kinetic. So the, uh, the cutoff date for the old versions in Prophet 21 is a much harder date than it is in the Kinetic world. The pushback from the end user community, to put it another way, in Kinetic was much stronger. So the, uh, the I'm not even sure if there is a current no more support date for legacy fat clients solutions. I guess there's also a piece there is, you know, the original architecture of the web user interface, you could really customize them a lot in the old kinetic world. You could add a lot of C-sharp code that did this and that, and you could, you could control the user experience in a way that um, the low code Angular JavaScript UI just doesn't support. It's much more of a low code environment that says, if you want to do custom business logic, you got to send that to the server and call a function to do what you want versus doing it right here on the client side. So the um, migration of these complex screens at time that have you know, thousands of lines of, of code in them to modify that and push it all into a different architecture. It, it may not be a user uh, re-implementation, but for your IT staff or whoever is doing that, that technical work, it can be hugely significant. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and along those same lines, as sort of a follow-up. This is from Dan on YouTube. Uh, Dan Aldrich, who you just mentioned a moment ago that you and I both know. Uh, thanks for being here, Dan. Dan asked the question of, are you familiar with any AI-enabled software to speed up the migration from on-prem to cloud solutions? Can, so can you just use ChatGPT to to do the the upgrade from uh, on-prem yeah, to cloud? I, I have not, yeah, I have, I have not seen that myself. Um, code converters are, are certainly out there, but... Um, Converting an apple into a pomegranate is not something I've seen AI pull off. Uh, I'm sure that if uh, someone wanted to put enough due diligence to working with that specifically in the context of one application, they could get there. But I have not seen anything um, myself that that has helped in that area. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, here's a comment from... LinkedIn, I apologize, I don't see who the who the person is, but the comment is, is agreed 100%. It's a disruption when you're upgrading to a new system or version. And there's a learning curve for sure. Effort should be made on how this learning curve can be reduced. It's all about to value each employee's learning curve. So I think that's probably the mm. really important point. If you have a highly tenured person who's been around for a long time, a lot of tribal knowledge, they know how to work all the exceptions, all the nuances of your business processes, they've figured out how to make it work within your current legacy systems for better or for worse now you throw in a cloud solution a new user interface and it's just it's just different um you know one thing that you and i had talked about too brad that along these same lines is that oftentimes with on-premise solutions or even private cloud solutions you get a, a bit more flexibility in those solutions and that you know you, you've got your own instance of the software where you can make changes to it you can customize it you can change the code do whatever you want Whereas public cloud or SaaS models where it's multi-tenant and you've got less flexibility on that front, you know, that can affect resistance to change as well. How do you, how do you see those two models being accepted differently by people within organizations or how does it affect the human side of, of change for organizations? Mm -hmm. Boy, yeah. So two two different questions and, and two interesting ones at the same time. Um, so I've seen the interaction of web UI migration and SaaS migration or cloud migration of, as two kind of independent variables that easily overlap. Um, they overlap probably from a marketing standpoint. It's very 
helpful, I think, for vendors to, to associate web UI with SaaS, because if I can get you into the web UI, I can sell you my SaaS solution and transfer your license into a subscription base. So there's certainly some, some benefit there from, from that simple standpoint, which is why I think these two things get overlapped so much. But I tend to look at them as separate because they both have separate conundrums and, and conundrums and challenges. Uh, I would say in terms of looking at specific, specifically the web UI transition from an end user standpoint, uh, the key is I think finding, uh, and this goes back to the idea of re-implementation is, is providing enough time and effort to get into the new system and surface all of the things that are different and understanding what is the uh, mitigation strategy for differences. Now, these differences are truly bugs, things you have to go out and fix, something that was customized in the old version and you can fix it in the new in a different way, surfacing all of those things. Challenge, of course, is, is um, oh boy, this is drives us down another, let's go down one rabbit hole. We, 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 our rabbit hole's gone down. I'm making an auxiliary room here for some of the little bunnies here. Um, ERP hygiene is a term that I think is really important because ER, companies that have general ERP hygiene will be much better at upgrades. Uh, and when I say ERP hygiene, I mean, just a, a little fact, every time I do one of these webinars with you, the first thing I do before the cameras go on is make sure I'm wearing deodorant. It's not like you would know, but I would know. But in hygiene, you know, key e hygiene elements with customers tend to be, do I have a large Super user community. I have a community of comfortable in the system and able to get in there, are not change averse and willing to help work along, spend some time testing. They're the internal leaders of all the different divisions in terms of how this system interacts with the user experience. And that's a really important thing. Good comes with good ERP hygiene, have built a strong power. All right. Another area there tends to be the opposite. You know, how big is your caveman community, right? Cave citizens against virtually everything, right? These are the people who threaten to quit when you implement a new ERP system. I'm in one right now where I have, uh, you know, you have change averse and you have cave and the caves are like, okay, I'm ready to retire early because the new system's taking away my, my 40 year cheese and re real sharp cheddar by that time. Um, so that, that, those are two kind of key pieces there. And uh, another would be, the overall degree to which ERP is a business oriented versus a technical oriented solution for the organization. Is the business engaged in the solution and its use, or is it just an IT problem, right? The more that the business is organically engaged in the process, the easier it'll be to surface issues, cross train, uh, troubleshoot solutions. And as, as your, your commenter had made that the idea of, of no employee left behind, you have a lot of uh, power users who are deeply engaged in the community, uh, the ERP system community, they can help those other users, you know, keep pulling them forward. Uh, so that is kind of a, a healthy company makes for a healthy upgrade and that those two tend to go together. So quite often, you know, migrations like this surface a lot of business challenges with a, a community inside of that company that, that might otherwise go unsurfaced in the day-to-day -day grind. So, you know, making sure that, you know, Kind of okay. So out of that, out of that hygiene uh, rabbit hole, and up we talk about the importance of how to best address a group of people inside of your community to minimize the challenge of of that migration. What I found works. There's the kind of two different branches that people go into. They can do like a big bang upgrade, or they can do a incremental upgrade. Now, one of the interesting things about, and I'm going to use. 
uh, Prophet 21 specifically as the example. They have kind of a what I call a last branched version. It's they have the last version that supports both the leg legacy two-tier desktop <clears throat> and the future state three-tiered web UI. And so that last branch version, half of the user community right now is on that version and too scared to go forward because of various members, users within their own company that is still on the desktop version. So the key here is when you're doing an, an incremental uh, implementation, if say you're on that version, is coming up with a strategy to not one, rip the Band-Aid, because if you rip the Band-Aid, we might all bleed to death. So you, you peel that Band-Aid off slowly by having your, your power users get into the system first on the website and start solving as many problems as possible and working in the web version of the user interface as much as possible. All right, that creates some critical mass and, and gets some of those easy problems solved. While you're doing that, you're working with your more challenged users. Some of these users might be like a whole department. Let's say uh, this is an easy system for the purchasing department to move to the web UI, but in sales, it's a much harder leap for whatever reason. Now, with your sales team, let's say you start scheduling, okay, uh, Monday and Tuesday afternoons, we're going to work in the web UI and we're going to conduct daily business in the web UI and we're only going to jump into the desktop if we run into a limitation, a bug, a defect, missing functionality, et cetera. And you do that over time, you start gauging people's comfort level. How are you doing? Uh, the most successful companies I've seen from a hygiene standpoint are constantly asking their users how comfortable they are with the use of the application and providing auxiliary training if needed, troubleshooting over the shoulder observation to help sort out things, and sometimes, yeah, dialing them back to the old system while we fix the new. And then over time, you incrementally try to make those blocks of larger and larger and larger. Your most difficult departments are working in the new system such that when you say, okay, when we are 90x percent comfortable with the system, we turn off the old and we move to the new. That is kind of the incremental version of this uh, migration path. And, and if you have a system that supports, you know, kind of a branched version, you can pull that off. And I found that has been one way kind of coax your your team into migrating when change be their DNA. Right. If you are trying to achieve digital transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, select the right software, and manage their implementations. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. Whether you are embarking on an ERP, HCM, CRM, supply chain management, or any other digital transformation, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. We're, we're sort of dancing around this topic of change aversion, change resistance, um, how cloud has some obviously upside benefit to both vendors and customers, especially vendors, but there's also a dark side potentially to customers in that there is change resistance. So this is actually just a great pointed question here from Esther on LinkedIn, which is uh, probably a good way to dive into a little bit further. 
But what are some of the common reasons for resistance? Mm -hmm. I know you've already you've alluded to a few things here in passing as we've talked, but if we were to sort of summarize why mm -hmm. why organizations or people within organizations tend to resist change to cloud based solutions and or these, you know, sexy new web user interfaces, why is it that people are resisting or what are the common reasons why people are resisting those sorts of changes? Oh boy. So this delves into, I think there's, there's technical pieces and there's psychological pieces. Um, I'm, I'm not neither a good technician nor a psychologist. Um, I would say that generally I, I see organizations have different tolerance of change at a management level. So one of the reasons will be, uh, will be from management. And I'll say, I'll see, we'll talk with a, one company and they'll be, well, if we have 1% diminution in efficiency, we can't do this. Right. There is lack of confidence in that 1% that they'll be able to catch that 1% up over time. So they'll demand a really rigorous and long process to get themselves over that hurdle. Other companies are much more um, cognizant of things like ramp up periods and, and learning curves such that they'll say, okay, if we're at 80%, we'll, we'll cut the cord at 80 and we know we'll ramp up within the next two months. And that'll be the, the plan. So we'll, we'll manage it and try to manage that change. So they're a little more likely to take the risk there. So it's a, a risk aversion level, you know, for companies that, that work in especially uh, spiky environments, seasonal environments where making all of your sales is really important during the summer season, having anything that is an encumbrance at that point could be a huge uh, problem because during the down season, if you've lost sales during the busy season because of a migration now, suddenly the business might be struggling. So you might find yourself having to plan within a off season window. That's certainly one kind of logical thing. Uh, I would say that Going back to management, I've also seen cases where uh, more of a hammer methodology than others. Some folks are real kumbaya, let's all get together and decide this together. Others are more like, okay, we're going to draw this line. We're going to take our time and make a good decision. But once we've made that decision, that, that line is firm in the sand and we're going to hold to it. And that's kind of the, the hammer management model that says, okay, guys, this is what we're doing. We need to make this work. Now go make this work. Um, I tend to see that that assertive management in these kinds of things quite often uh, drives people to make uh, upgrades work and it requires a little bit of hammer and uh, companies that lack that hammer tend to stay on older and older versions so there's a certain amount of uh, uh, management that uh, assertiveness that really is required there now i think the, the problem when you get down to the end user level um, some of it has to do with uh, comfort level curiosity level uh, when you have something like a web UI, there, there will be certain people, and it's not even an age thing, I don't find. I, I, I know guys, you know, 50s, 60s, who are just immensely curious. So as soon as the new version's out, they're poking around, they're trying to see what they can do with it. It's, it has to do with a uh, level of curiosity overwhelming the level of fear. And uh, when you have folks who are uh, very fearful, uh, they tend to be very changeable. So if there's something where I'm still running into folks in the ERP community who are very used to doing 95% of their work in spreadsheets and even paper-based, and then finally taking their final answers and plugging them into the system in order to cut a purchase order or what have you. Those folks are going to be extremely difficult to get to something that has greater change of version, uh, change, you know, greater deal of pieces. Quite often, I found 
this goes back to my bond days, become experts in the organization based on their ability to perform workarounds. And if the new system takes those workarounds away, suddenly there's this domain of expertise that suddenly it's like you're you're in an engineering world where everybody moved to CAD and you're still the, the last best pencil and paper engineer on one of those big drafting tables. Suddenly the entire ecosystem underneath you has been pulled out from underneath you. Folks, folks can feel all kinds of challenges for that, especially if the learning curve of building kind of a, an interaction paradigm that's so different than what they've been used to. I think that that is an area that makes that, it gets manifested in not as efficient in the new system as I was in the old. You're making me slower. So overcoming that challenge, because you know that we talked about the underlying cause, ultimate balance, bottom line challenge there for the organization, or at entering orders, or we are slower at uh, processing purchase orders on time, getting inventory in when needed. All those things can create legitimate business challenges. Uh, so yeah, everything ends up gearing around trying to mitigate some of those tangible challenges. And I think that's honestly one of the best mitigation strategies is to be focusing not so much on the the why, but the what. You know, what isn't working? How do we fix it? And keeping the emotionality out of it. As much as and that it's there, I think using emotionality as a technique to overcome these challenges is is probably not the most efficient use of time when it comes to planning a migration. I think the key is you can sell the the changes to people and sell them on your ability to help handhold them through so they can get to their point of efficiency that they need. I think that's generally the best way of trying to get people over the hurdle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the you know the key takeaway here is that uh you used the comment earlier in the conversation about who moved my cheese. And anytime you move someone's cheese, even if it's a net gain to the organization and to you individually, there's going to be some resistance. There's going to be some road bumps, speed bumps along the way that's going to make it more difficult for people to adapt to that change. So I think that's something that's worth worth noting. Um, here's a comment from, uh, I'm not going to put it on the screen because it's a very long comment. So I'm just going to read it, but it's more of a a case study, if you will, a use case to sort of validating what you, you just mentioned, uh, Brad, which is the need to use a hammer in addition to some of the more finesse-based uh, change strategies. But this person on LinkedIn, and again, this is another one where I don't see um, the person's name, but the, the person says, here's what happened. Interestingly, with one of my implementations, I was implementing ERP Next for a smaller company with 100 to 200 users. The, there were people of the so-called Stone Age who were hard-coded with a desktop-based accounting uh, inventory management system. There was obvious resistance about the failure of the new system providing certain features, although it had the features, but the process was different. And this is what happened. Top management just sent an email stating that we are implementing the new cloud ERP software for sure. Either you can use it or leave the company. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but that really helped in getting these people along the way, and we successfully implemented it. So... It, there's one data point here that suggests that there is a time and place mm -hmm. to use the hammer and say you are going to change, you are going to use this new um, this new system. Now, I, I wouldn't suggest that's your only uh, tool in the toolbox. You've got the hammer; you, you can use it uh, selectively, but you also do need the the more the more finesse based uh, ways of doing it. And like you said, it it probably depends on the person and whether they are open to change. If they're the type of person that likes to learn new systems and poke around and just really get their hands on it? Or are they someone that's more afraid of change and not wanting to, to go through the change? So mm -hmm. I think you have to sort of tailor your change strategies based on that. 
Yeah, yeah, I think uh, combining what and why is probably a good idea. You know, the what, this is what we need to do. Why, this is the logic behind what we're doing. This is, these are the business conditions that mandate us needing to do that. If people understand the need, I know quite often with, this is more of an implementation than it is a uh, upgrade. But when a company is on a, on a dead server, like an AS400 system, that is a ticking time bomb. And everybody says, yeah, we know it's a ticking time bomb. You remember back in July when the system went down and we were out for a week, we can't let that happen in the future. So there's a clear why of what we need to do that drives the what that says we must do. And so when you combine those two, uh, hopefully that sells over more people on where, where you need to go. Yeah. Now, now, what about training? Here's a here's a question on training, which is obviously a subset of change management and addressing resistance to change. But this is from Nima on LinkedIn. Nima says, "How do you balance training based on the individual user needs and skill sets versus training at scale for the broad user base, especially in today's you know sort of standardized SaaS cloud environment? You know, how do you how do you tailor training, but at the same time scale it for a bigger bigger user base?" Yeah, that gets challenging. I think is as your user bases get larger, this challenge becomes increasingly nuanced. Um, I think again, it probably depends on the degree to which your system, your user community has uh, power users. One key piece here would be that training can be deployed through your power user base versus from your IT department. I've seen a lot of successful migrations and implementations drive training at that level. Um, so by the time the system is ready for use, the people who are rolling it out to the end users are not IT folks. They're the people who are in the trenches on their own. And so they can speak to the specific challenges much more readily and the gotchas and the did you think of this sorts of situations. So I think standardized training is one thing. Training delivery is probably another question. I think you've seen this as well, Eric. In 95% in of the failed implementations I've seen, one of the first things they say was inadequate training. So you always want to try to you know, from when I think about communication as a key element of change management, I think of um, communication going down to the end user. And it's not even uh, necessarily the, the, the marketing end of communication, but rather training is a form of communication, right? It tells the user, I value your time and I value your presence here that I'm going to educate you properly on the use of the system so that you can do be successful. So that's a, a big communication plan. So companies that fail at training fail at communication. I think that's a piece. Um, gauging users. I had mentioned this earlier of, well, how's your training going? Is your, is your adoption level, is your familiarity, comfort level with the application improving, or is it not? If you're, if you're stuck in the mud here, we need to figure out how to uh, address that. So going back to the original question of, do you tailor it for each user or do you have a broad base? What I've seen co some companies do is you have a broad based set of training, uh, techniques that you deploy and you're gauging your users constantly asking them what's your comfort level now of course this re requires your end users to be honest and say if if you're a one to five and you're you feel like you're a two you shouldn't say you're a four why because you go live and suddenly you're a two um and, you know and so i i often say the the motto anybody who lies here refuse uh reneges the right to complain later right so it's you got to be honest at this point and if if people are feeling comfortable and in increasing their comfort level okay you keep with that standardized training you have 
specialized training for individual users who are slower to adopt. And that's, again, a place where you can deploy your super users for some tailored one-on-one -on -one to help those folks kind of keep themselves ramped up. And then slowly you drag everyone up to that point. Also, if you're using a, a, an implementation method where you're doing incremental, where you have that branched version and you can kind of take people in two different paths, uh, you can really gauge who is, is is more slowly adopting and who isn't. And you can, the, the training sort of tailors itself, honestly, in terms of the people who are already, you know, 100% in a new system and, uh, and people who are not. We had that, uh, this would have been, oh boy, this was pre-print. So we weren't yet partying like it was 1999, but we had implemented a new MES system in the factory where I worked. And you got to that point where they were asking, well, how, how uh, good is the system version? versus the old paper-based system that preceded it. And it, and we had some users who were, well, I, I don't use the paper-based system anymore. I can't compare anymore because I'm completely in the new system. I do 100% of my work in the new system. You realize, okay, that that gradual approach uh, allows your your early, early adopters to get in earlier and then kind of pull everyone along, hopefully. Hopefully they're the types of people who value pulling others along for the ride. That's not always the case. So matter with folks to make sure that your your superstar team build team orientation there yeah and also you know recognizing that training doesn't necessarily just need to be pre-go live or right before go live end user training it's also a matter of walking people through the process changes along the way too so that by the time you show them how the system works in detail they've already sort of had their freak out moments they've already panicked about mm -hmm. how someone's moved their cheese and the process mm -hmm. is going to look totally different. My job's going to change. You sort of work through all that. And then you get to end user training later on where now you're just showing them how it's going to look in the system. They've already sort of uh, adapted or they've already adjusted mentally to, to the cheese being mm -hmm. moved. So I think that's one of the key things too, is to recognize that it's not just, I think too often we put too much pressure on user, end user training to sort of clean up any sort of change issue mm. we might have and we hope that 30 days before go live when we start training people they'll they'll get it and they'll just sort of accept yeah. it and the reality is oftentimes that's when they first freak out and realize what the changes are because they're hearing about it for the first time in this big classroom training session or whatever and so we have to figure out ways to get to sort of accelerate that process get that happening sooner in the project so they're not freaking out right before we go live which is going to create a lot of disruption no, that's a great point. Testing is really a great form of training, I think yeah. you're saying, is that if you yeah. can get people involved in the testing process, unit testing, cross-functional testing, the broader uh, team you can get into there, the more people you'll already have ramped up. So the training is more of a rubber stamp than it is a, a, a screenshot. Yeah. Yeah. And here's a follow-up comment that's, that's a great one from Jill on LinkedIn. Jill says, I find the most effective training design is when the focus is around the process versus only tool functionality. When we focus on the behavioral changes directly, things tend to click faster. And that's really, I think that's perfectly said. That's a, a great point where I think, you know, as a software vendor, if I'm a software vendor, I'm going to focus my training on getting you to understand how my software works. But if I'm a team member of an organization trying to get my, my team members on board, yes, they need to know how the software works, but what's even more important is how, what does it mean for me? Like, what's my job? What's my process? How's my behavior need to change? Yeah, show me the tool too, of course, but that's only one dimension of it. So you have to sort of take the mindset of what the software vendors have and you have to broaden it to say, well, what's important to us is to train and to get people on board with broader behavioral and process changes, not just using a new tool. 
Right. This was another term that came back from the bond days that a, a colleague of mine used to use. The term was monkey button pushers, right? You can get a monkey to push a button, but you don't necessarily can convince him or get him to understand what happens when you button or why you should put the, push that button. And when you have a team of just button pushers who don't understand you know, what from a process standpoint is this doing, it's so much harder, I think, to try to get them to follow a sequence of events. Um, again, going back to, say, an MES example where you're completing quantities on the shop floor. Well, I'm, I'm clicking here and I'm clicking there and I'm clicking there and I'm putting a number in there. If, if that doesn't, if you're not able to portray the why of this, well, when you do this, now that you've completed quantities, now we know that this much is in inventory. Now, purchasing knows that they need to buy some new material. The, the extent of this is how this integrates to the full process. It's a, uh, when you're showing them the what versus the why, why is kind of the, the statement of respect, right? I, I respect you enough to tell you the why in the background to understand how you can impact the overall business process. I think that comment there about process versus functionality is right on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then a follow-up comment from Jill again on LinkedIn. Hope is not a strategy. So that's a great, great. Tell uh, that to Obama. Never mind. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he built a whole presidency on, on uh, hope being a strategy. It was a campaign strategy. I'll say that much. It was. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Good marketing. Great marketing. Um, here's a question. There's a question I wanted to get back to here, which is a, was a few minutes ago. It came in. Um, bear with me. So here's an interesting question that's not going to show on the screen. So I'm gonna have to hide it to read the whole thing. But uh, it says, how, in your opinion, this is from Wichter on LinkedIn, Wichter says, how, in your opinion, will cognitive cloud computing affect businesses? Do you agree that this approach would dramatically change how companies operate and how is it relevant to cloud ERP? Maybe I'll just stop there and sort of simplify the question a bit. Do you, so mm -hmm. are you, are you oh, that's an interesting, um, I, I've, I've played on the fringes of it. Um, in, my, in my mind, the idea of where some of the, the work is being done on automation and AI would be the, the replication of user interaction. Um, that is an area I think I've seen with many customers who are struggling with employee and staffing challenges, especially like during the pandemic last four years. Gosh, we're talking in fours now. Anyways, uh, you talk about people struggling to find the right bodies to do things like enter orders, schedule jobs. You have a lot of attrition and, and the younger crowd for whatever reason is not saying when I, when I wake up in the morning, I want to be an order entry clerk. So what do you do with order entry positions that now need to be done? You need to get your orders in. And there's a lot of customer specific tribal knowledge and such that needs to be handled. I think that's a place where uh, working with the ERP system and working with the process that intervenes it and you know, intercepting or receiving an input via an email or what have you, processing that data according to some heuristic methods, you know, discerning the the tribal knowledge and the the what ifs and the maybes and trying to you know calculate probabilities of what this means and what that means, then converting that into an entered order and replicating end user steps. You know, RPA is a nice way of doing that, saying okay, these are all the steps that a user goes through at a user interface level um, to replicate that work there. I think there's certainly a place there where those kind of plug and play positions uh, find themselves in the future being addressed. I see the same thing probably in purchasing. It has the the 
comparative least amount of tribal knowledge. I'm sorry if I'm offending any purchasers out there. Um, compared to some some other areas that are much more engineering and build material specific, you you talk about purchasing folks taking minim inventory minimums and work in process and stuff that's in transit and coming up with a you know order amount for a given purchaser understanding what the the purchasers or the vendors necessary limits are to hit price points and such taking all those inputs and generating an output of a purchase order i think that's a place where uh, ai and cognitive based systems could find themselves in the near future replacing positions that we have a hard time staffing for right now mm. yeah yeah absolutely. and I, I, would, I would say cloud really so the question of what is what does that do to cloud you know, cloud's all about portability. You know, one of the big benefits to companies about cloud versions versus their on-premise uh, desktop client counterparts is the portability allotted to it. That if you have a system that is not bound and not limited in its interactions, you might find the ability there. Now it's those connections are that much easier to make um, versus, you know, that there to be working on this computer in this seat with this uh, network connection. A lot of those limitations now go away and allow for some of these other interactions to to happen unfettered, which is a good and bad thing. We can talk about that too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Here's a comment, <clears throat> uh, some kind words from LinkedIn. This has hit on so many variables I've encountered firsthand. Awesome discussion. So thank you for, for that comment. And again, Super. unfortunately, I can't see who, who that is exactly that said that, but thank you for the, the kind words to whoever you are. Um, I guess just to bring this all full circle, Brad, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we've covered a lot of ground here in terms of, you know, first of all, the difference in the nuances between cloud and SaaS deployments versus on-prem versus the old, you know, the historic way of doing things. Um, we've also talked about the the change resistance as it relates to, to cloud and web UI and, and stuff like that. So there's a lot we've covered here, but how do we get started in terms of if I'm a project team and I'm about to begin a cloud migration, what are some of the top recommendations you would give, you know, as far as here's how to, here are the things you want to do, or here are the things you want to make sure you focus on to get started on your, on your cloud migration. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I will say it's a lot like physical training. Um, I did a lot of physical training where I would um, do exercises that weren't trying to achieve the goal. And then I ran into some folks on YouTube who would criticize folks who are doing plyometrics when they're trying to build muscle, right? Plyometrics are for building strength and explosiveness. They won't build muscle. So if you want to build muscle, get those plyometric exercises out there. Stop running for three hours. You need to be doing, you know, deep squats with a heavy bar on your back. Obscene work. I don't know why people do this. But anyways, it's, I think it's the same thing in an ERP is what goals are you trying to achieve? What problems are you trying to solve? If you don't have a clear idea of that, you're going to have a hard time implementing or you're going to implement something that solved different problems, right? You know, this ERP was a great solution to problems we didn't have. That's a problem. You know, you don't want to be in that position. So clearly understanding what your goals are as an organization, what the things are you're trying to achieve and what things are you trying to avoid is really important, whether it's, you know, web UI or whether it's cloud, whether you're going down, you know, do you have reason to stay on premise? Uh, there are plenty of reasons there. I, I see customers with poor bandwidth. If you're in a poor bandwidth zone, on premise is an entirely logical system. If you inherited 
uh, six-month-old hardware that has a five-year warranty and it's stuck in a colo right now and that colo is reliable and secure, you're probably good for the next five years. You don't need to necessarily, you know, knee-jerk react and jump to the cloud. So understanding your circumstance and your goals is probably the first step to any of these uh, sorts of, of situations. I'd say, you know, specifically speaking to the web UI and software migration, I think you really want to be asking that question. What are the benefits of staying current? Um, do I have risks? You know, what is the cost of doing nothing? This goes back to Six Sigma days. We always used to ask that question. You know, you run into a process. Well, what's the cost of doing nothing at all and just living with what we have? Is that cost significant or is it small? Can we can we scoot along for a while? Do those cross costs kind of exponentially grow? Does that risk exponentially grow? Understanding all those pieces before you've been on a direction, I find to be really your, your best bet to avoiding uh, future challenges down the road. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a sound advice as far as how to how to get started and ultimately how to overcome some of the resistance to change that organizations inevitably experience in these these sorts of situations. So uh, great stuff. Well, I, I really appreciate you you joining us here today, Brad. This was a great conversation and uh you know, I appreciate the suggested topic too, as far as the intersection between change management and cloud and web UI types of solutions. So really appreciate you joining here today. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.